Welcome to Theology Untap. Um, my name is Mike. I am one of the priests at the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion and one of the organizers of Theology Untap. We're glad to have you with us. And if you'd like to know more about Theology Untap, if you'd like to sign up so that you know when we're going live, um, one of the best ways to do that is to get on our email list. If you go to www.pubtheologystl.org, uh, head over to that. Um, you can sign up for our email list, get the notifications about our events. And we're in a season where we are doing what we're calling interfaith conversations. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I got to talk with Rory Pickernice. And tonight, I'm really glad to be joined by the Reverend Dr. Ben Sanders. Ben is a theologian and an ethicist at Eden Theological Seminary right here in St. Louis. And Ben, I want to start out with a question for you that, you know, we, we called this interfaith conversations. And when I was talking with Maharat Pickernese, that's a pretty obvious Christian and Jewish interfaith conversation. But I want to ask you about the idea of an interfaith conversation between a white clergy leader and a black theologian and clergy leader and ask you about where do you locate yourself uh, within Christianity or the various versions of Christianity that are out there. Yeah, appreciate that, Mike. Uh, and thanks as always for inviting me to Theology on Tap. This is um, not just because we're live now. This is one of my favorite things to do uh, in terms of in terms of uh, being publicly engaged here in the city. So I, I'm glad to be back. Um, I think of myself and I speak of myself in public um, as a Black Baptist Christian. Uh, and it's important to me that Black comes before Baptist. Um, mm -hmm as as really an important is a critical modifier um by which i mean um my my um my commitment to christ my understanding of the gospel and its power and its centrality in my life um has been um it, there's no way for me to account for those things apart from my experience um as a straight black male in america hmm. Um, and 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 the lessons that I've learned about what my body represents um, to the society, to the powers in the society, to potential friends and allies, and all of those different things, right? So there's no way for me um, to make sense of and to explain the the sincerity of my faith in Christ without also talking about the experiences that I've had in this particular body. So that's some of how um, I kind of. Uh, sort of orient or locate myself um, in these the racialized religious phenomenon that is American Christianity. Oh, that's a really interesting racialized religious phenomenon <laughs> that is American Christianity. You know, I came up with that question about locate yourself within your faith tradition on purpose because after a trip to India, somebody explained to me that it's it's sort of improper to talk about Hinduism. It's That's really more of a family of religious traditions. We really, it's better to talk about Hinduism. Mm -hmm. I got thinking about Christianity versus Christianities. Yes. Uh, and that for me is to hear you say, it, it's not something that I would do. And that, you know, part of what I'm learning about whiteness is, is we think about it as normed or normal, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I would not think of my tradition as white Christianity. And mm -hmm. yet I just saw a Pew Research thing in the Episcopal churches, you know, it's in the top 10 most white of the denominations. We're not mm -hmm. quite as white as the Lutherans or the Methodists, but we're close. Um, but it's interesting to hear you talk about black Baptist and that the order specifically matters for you. What is it about the black church or or the the black identity within uh, Christianity that like make sense of it a little bit. Talk a little bit about what it is that locates that for you. Yeah, there's there there are a couple of levels on which I I, I tend to think about that. The first is historical, mm -hmm. and it has to do with um, how um, one. Um, human beings that we now refer to as black or African-American arrived into this land, right? Mm -hmm. um, as, as, as we know or ought to know, it was not voluntary. Um, and um, the religious world that my ancestors were dragged into was one um, that was incredibly hostile. Mm 
And the primary function of Christianity as they were introduced to it was to control them and to justify their systemic dehumanization, which means that there's no way into the truth of the gospel for descendants of Africa without radically reappropriating what was presented to us as Christianity upon arrival. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I would start there historically. From, from the historical part, we encounter some of the most magnificent religious and theological work that has been done in the United States because somehow the people that made it possible for me to be on this podcast mm -hmm. heard the bad news of white Christianity and were able to listen and think around it into the reality of the people of Israel and their offspring, Jesus, in his story. Mm -hmm. um, and that has everything to do with, I think, the truth of the Gospels, and I'm making a theological claim, right? Yeah. Once you start to sort of even play with the stories of Scripture, right? You start to play with stories about people who are oppressed um, um, and um, prophets who try to warn um, groups about what it means to live with communal and, and individual integrity. Um, once you start to read about Jesus's life and his relationship to systemic and structural power, right? Um, you, it's you have to intentionally, I think, um, kind of submerge and conceal the fact that that story is for communities that are oppressed yeah. and that are dehumanized regularly, right? So that's at least a couple of things that happened. First, the historical part, how did black people get here? What was that original encounter with Christianity? And two, how is it that Black people, on, on what sort of religious grounds did Black people make Jesus their choice? And it's not the same religious grounds um, as, as were presented to them, right? Mm -hmm. um, the values that, that we um, find and uphold through the story of Jesus, through biblical stories, through Christian tradition, are not the same values um, that were held and espoused by by the folks who thought that they they owned my ancestors, and so that to me is really really um, a critical aspect of understanding um, what again what American Christianity is, and then more specifically what Black and, and in my case what Black Baptist Christianity is. Yeah, it's a it's a really I mean we've been wrestling with some of the history more in the past decade than at least any other time in my lifetime uh, in our own tradition in the Episcopal Church. In well, last Sunday, um, our priest associate, Mark Smith, uh, did a conversation about the slave Bible, and he was starting to put that together before uh, Henry Louis Gates's uh, Black Church documentary came out, but they spent some time talking about how our ancestors, Episcopalians, the Anglican Church, the Church of England um, folks, literally produced Bibles that lacked most of the book of Exodus, um, many of the gospels, some of Paul's letters, because they knew that this was revolutionary stuff. This was this gospel message, this you know hope of God is a liberative message. And that's the last thing that you wanna hand to people who have been enslaved. That's right. Uh, that's that's right. Yeah, that's right. I think that there are certain there are certain aspects. Of, now, listen, we could have a whole other conversation about, you know, um, aspects of scripture that are problematic and that need to be read very, very carefully yeah. in order to maintain their life giving capacity. Yeah. And there are certain stories in, in scripture that even the most self-centered, control obsessed folk can't rob of its liberatory power. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's how we end up with, you know, slave Bibles and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. But I love that, that image that you just had about um, you found that, that uh, your ancestors in the black church found their way around mm -hmm. uh, the version of Christianity that was presented to them. And in some ways, I mean, another, the Episcopal church is a very liturgical church. Uh, and it was, a real shocker to me and, and a difficult thing for me to find out that in the early American period, there were Episcopal churches that had added a question onto the baptismal rite. That if you were going to baptize slaves, which for a while they weren't sure that if it was a good idea to baptize enslaved people, because then they might you know think that they were human or you yes. might have to think about them being human. Yes. But that they added a question about obey your masters on yes. the liturgy itself. Yes. And to be able to have the 
the the the spiritual strength to go around that mm -hmm. um, to read the Bible for yourself to claim your own interpretation mm -hmm. is a that yeah that's a that's a strong stream to stand in the midst of yeah and then to think about the context in which that claiming happened mm -hmm. right I mean this is it is um, you know there are certain states and certain periods in which folks are literally putting their lives on the line every time they go to worship. This, of course, carries into the middle of the 20th centuries if we paid attention to church bombings in states like Alabama and, and across the South, but also some in the North. Um, right. So, I mean, it's it's it is um, it is a story that needs to be told. It is it's a necessary part of liberating the gospel for all of us yeah. um, that that this story be told. Yeah, no, I, that in and of it. I mean, that idea of a liberating Christianity. Uh, for me, was salvific for Christianity. I think if I hadn't encountered um, that idea of that God took sides, mm -hmm. uh, which was not something that generally was taught in the Episcopal church that I grew up, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. except that I grew up in a church that was one of the first in the area I grew up to ordain women. And so there was a little bit there, but um, it was not until I encountered Latin American liberation theology in college that really yes. this idea of you know god with stakes um took place and it wasn't it was through that that i started to encounter black liberation theology but to stand in that to have that be presented as the central story yeah is really i wonder so i'm going to ask you to pivot and um i'm going to note that we've got some folks um bringing in comments um That's awesome and I will hey, questions and say hi and please do. Um, uh, and we right now we've got a lot of folks that are, you know didn't know those things about baptism and saying hi from you know who they where they grew up and things like that. So it's good to see you. We see you. Um, I want to ask you to pivot a little bit and talk about you and I came to St. Louis in a sort of similar time frame. We both we've been here about the same amount of time. Um, and I would love to know. I came from Washington D.C. Uh, and some really um, incredible black church leaders there. And I would love to hear your um, your sense of the black church in St. Louis and what are the big mm -hmm. questions, the, these five years that you've been here, what are the big questions facing the black church in St. Louis? Yeah, I mean, St. Louis is a city filled with, um, you know, wonderful African-American congregations um, and folks who, um, who have for decades and in some cases, um, for for um, for centuries, have worshipped together uh, with the hopes of um, with the hopes of creating um, um, a life experience in the city that is life giving and not life demeaning. I also think that when I compare my experience in St. Louis with my experience living in other cities, Denver. Uh, New York City, Chicago, right? So these are these are um, larger American cities. But um, one of the things that I've observed and lived inside of now for the last five and a half years is this is the first city um, that I've ever lived in where um, there is not one or four or five. Um, there are not one or four or five outstanding uh black congregations that folks can regularly point to and say, that's where we know to turn when questions of um, justice, when questions of local politics and policy, when questions of um, the meaning of our faith and, and, and deeply painful moments, right? Here, here are our, um, here are our, our leaders. Hmm. Um, and so in that regard, um, I think that there's a really um, tragic kind of, um, leadership vacuum when it comes to the black church in St. Louis that I haven't experienced in the same way. Now, this is not to say that there aren't black Christian leaders in St. Louis because there are. Mm -hmm. um, I think of Tracy Blackman, right? Yeah. Um, Starsky Wilson, who recently moved on to head the Children's Defense Fund in Washington, D.C., but before that um, was an absolutely magnificent figure um, in his own regard, um, standing alongside folks like um, Tracy Blackman working here in the city um, to transform um, not just the meaning of life for black folk in, in, in St. Louis, but the meaning of Christianity in this city. Yeah. Um, so we've had leadership, but 
when you look at, you know, um, Mike, you and I have talked offline about this. When you look at, um, so, you know, there's been a lot of conversation recently comparing St. Louis to Atlanta because of what we saw happen in Georgia, right? So, um, you know, decades and centuries of efforts, right? Um, really capitalized upon in some genius ways by Stacey Abrams and others led to um, some historic political, social and political transformations in the state of Georgia that there's no way of denying, especially since one of the things that happened in the midst of this um, political transformation is Raphael Warnock, who is a pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, right? The church that Martin Luther King Jr. uh, pastored was elected a senator, (laughs) right? So, I mean, there's no way of denying that the black church had had played a role there. But, you know, when we talk about um, comparing St. Louis and social and political possibilities um, that exist here, um, to those that exist in places like Atlanta, I think we've got to take really seriously the fact that it wasn't just smart, savvy, passionate organizing. The black church creates something in culture, yeah. um, in the culture of a place, outstanding, undeniable black church leadership that is sustained over time, that is sustained through storytelling, that is to sustained through um, how we um, 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 invest certain values in our children that makes certain things possible socially and politically that are not otherwise possible, right? And so one of the things that I think we've got to be really careful of as as, as we're looking at Georgia, um, um, and particularly for those of us who are Christians, is the Black church played a major role in making that possible. And Black church leadership um, that knows how to balance um, the pastoral and the prophetic um, in, in ways that can affect positive, undeniable change has been a major part of that that city, Atlanta, um, but also, I mean, other other major African-American hubs in the state um, and, and transforming that state. We can have it in St. Louis, um, but it's not as simple as, you know, being loud and being passionate, though that's an absolutely critical part of it, right? If, if that volume and passion is not also... See, there's some volume and yeah, that's not gonna that's not gonna change, right? Without with if that volume and passion is not rooted in faith that fundamentally reshapes our understanding of why we are here and what it is our responsibility to do, um, we can't we you have to earn what happened in Georgia. Yeah. And so we've got to earn it here. Yeah, I mean, like part of part I think of what I, I mean from from my colleagues in Georgia, part of the strength of what happened in Georgia too was building and rebuilding of networks that, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, you have both a, a committed theological voice for sure, mm-hmm. but that is also tied to institutional strength for places like Ebenezer and that those congregations are in strong relationship with others that there's, you know, like part of what they did is they built a network. Yes. And, and and so if you think about what happens if you've got a church like Ebenezer mm-hmm. in a city where you've also got institutions like Morehouse and Spelman College. Yeah. Right. Where you have black graduates of I mean, we've got Harris Stowe here in St. Louis, a historic black institution that barely gets mentioned or love, in my opinion. Right. When you have graduates of Morehouse and Spelman who can, um, you know, come out of their um, who can come out of their own um their own educational experiences and already be used to seeing black doctors, black leaders. It's not that we have to be obsessed with that sort of um, kind of, you know, sort of societal sort of um, um, uh, sort of understanding of success where you have to have a title, but it matters to black children because they're born into a world where they're already, um, you know, endless negative stereotypes that are ready to assault their psyche and their person. So to, to have those same children have an opportunity to finish at a place like Morehouse or Stoneman, right? Where they go to school with people that look like them and have teachers that look like them. That matters, that matters. And I think, um, you know, some of the visibility challenges that develop in a place like um, St. Louis, um, it's, you know, the black church has a real opportunity um, to, 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 to fill some of that vacuum um, but but in order for that to happen, and I don't want to get too far um, d- down this tangent, but in order for that to happen, um, African-American churches in St. Louis, more of them, I want to say, more of them have to get really serious about developing theological orientations and perspectives mm-hmm. that are grounded in an unapologetic commitment to creating equity for their congregants and in the city. Mm-hmm. And that is going to that. um that doesn't that doesn't grow out of having black skin. 
Yeah, that's that's some that's something else. It's a, it's a theological commitment as much as it's a identity. I mean, like and a political commitment as much as it's yeah. anything else. Yeah, and if we think about the theological commitment correctly, Mike, it's always about identity and politics. Hmm. A commitment to Jesus is about a it's about a fundamental reworking of your identity and your politics. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's 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 what that's what I think. No, I'm 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 with you. I'm I'm thinking about you. Know, we we sort of create a little outline for this conversation. So I'm looking at uh, a pivot. And really, folks, I, it's great to have folks say hi. Feel free to ask a question at any point. We'll we'd be happy to talk. Please do. Please do. But we were talking a little bit in our offline conversation about the role of the black church. And we, you know, we talked about what it can be politically, what it historically has been at times uh, politically. But part of what you what you said that I around, we just had a conversation, uh, we just put this on our website today um, with our deacon, Chester Hines, talking about the decline of black institutions mm-hmm. uh, at Homer G. Phillips Hospital and a number of other places, but that what it was to, it's particularly with Homer G. Phillips, like go to a place where all your doctors were black, where, you know, you saw this level of professional excellence. Yeah. Uh, according to the folks who spoke last night, Homer G. Phillips was like more doctors were coming out of there, more black doctors were coming out of Homer G. Phillips than anywhere in the country at one point. Yeah. Yeah. And to see that and to have pride in that, um, if the black church can be that, if church can be that, but yeah. we have to work on who we center, who we talk about. I wonder too though about what, um, uh, you know I've been reading this, uh, Barbara Holmes, who's oh, yeah. at seminary up in uh, Minnesota and uh, writing about black mysticism, um, mm-hmm. uh, black uh, contemplation. And she talks about church in this sense of, you know, like the ability to discern the spirit in the midst of the community. The, I think sometimes when we talk about black worship, black preaching, you know, we, we have particular ideas and images that come into our Absolutely. head. That's not our primary experience of Christianity. But talk a little bit about the contemplative side. Um, of Black Christianity, the the mystical side of that, like what is it that feeds folks' souls? Yeah. So, um, you, yeah, we talked about this a little bit offline. So, my my um, the figure for me that is absolutely essential to being a, a Black Baptist who is you know deeply committed to uh, developing and cultivating my own mystic streak is Howard Thurman, mm-hmm. who of course um, was was an absolutely critical mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. and so many other um, pivotal figures of the civil rights movement. Um, so, um, so here's here's some of what here's some of what I would want to say um, about um, the way that I tend to think about contemplation um, and the sort of uh, mystical aspects of black religion. One, um, I think we should we should be honest. I want to be honest, uh, at least in my own sort of understanding of black religion, that um, there aren't a whole lot of folks. And this is, I think, one of the reasons Unspeakable Joy was written. Right. Mm-hmm. There aren't a whole lot of black Christians who consciously think about what they do on a regular basis as contemplative. Yeah. But um, with good working definitions and good scholarship, which I'm, I'm sure I'm sure the book includes um, you you there's there's an undeniable aspect of black religion that is uh contemplative um and that is that is about what howard thurman um talked described as the inward journey mm-hmm. um uh there is um there's a um there is um it's necessary for your spiritual life we, you know, we live in an age now, Mike, where a lot of people claim to be spiritual and not religious, right? Which I often take to mean that um, they have um, serious and oftentimes well-founded suspicions about organized religion. And so they tend towards doing their own thing that sort of feeds them and, and tends to them. That's not what I think contemplation means in the context of black religion. Hmm. Um, that is a part of it, um, but to me, uh, to speak about black religion is to speak about a religious experience that is always fundamentally communal. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the contemplation grows out of experience in that community. Um, and some of the judgments made out of that contemplation are affirmed, are properly assessed by bringing it back to that community. This again has to do with um, 
social and historical context in, in which black religious communities have developed. It also has to do with um, what it means to take spirituality and faith seriously in a, in a society that is, again, uh, fundamentally committed to assaulting your sense of self. Hmm. Well, none of us gets our sense of self from ourself. And this is one of my major suspicions about spirituality that becomes too individualistic, right? Uh, none of us can finally ground ourselves simply in ourselves. Um, and, and, and I think that that's particularly that the truth of that is, is outstanding in communities that need each other because um, the society um, is committed to, a, to, a, to that, the assault I've been naming. Um, but when I think about um, what Howard Thurman did, there's this story of Thurman writing a letter to Martin Luther King Jr. after King was stabbed in Harlem. This is a, the, the stabbing is a well-known story, but um, the, Thurman um, wrote a letter to Martin Luther King Jr. aware that King's star had risen, that the civil rights movement was, um, was up and running, that the energies of young people in the South um, and, um, and, their elder, and their more elderly guides were transforming the culture of the South. And Thurman also seemed to have a sense of how much that transformation would cost a young Martin King. Mm -hmm. And so Thurman writes King a letter and he asks that they work on trying to find time just to sit together in silence. Mm -hmm. Not to sit together and strategize about the next steps for the movement, to sit together. Now, some of this is the uniqueness that the unique human being that is Howard Thurman. But, it, but Howard Thurman is a black Baptist. Yeah. And so is King. Right. And so the fact that that there's space between these two men for them to have a correspondence inside of which Thurman says, let's just sit together. Yeah. Right. And think and, and, and sort of, you know, regenerate ourselves in that the powerful spiritual space of that silence yeah. um, and in that space. Right. I mean, you know, it's almost, it sounds very midnight to, to a lot of folks, but it, but but to come from the black church. Yeah. Is to know that there have always been aspects of our worship and our religious lives that have to be concealed and that are better practiced in silence. Um, and so I think that um, mm. I, I, haven't, I haven't read Unspeakable Joy yet. I'm looking forward to reading Barbara Holmes's book, but, um, but it is, um, to me, the contemplative aspect of black religion, again, grows out of some of, some of that social and historical necessity, but it's also a way of, I think, balancing um, uh, the really important kind of dialectic between being an individual and being grounded necessarily in community. Yeah, well, and, and being an individual who, you know, as you just said, yeah, when you're the whole world is out to get you. Um, but when you make it into the black church, when you make it into worship, when you make it into community, you are being affirmed. Like, you know, the secret is the secret of your fundamental human dignity and your creatureliness. And, you know, that 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 is a space. That's it. That. So Aaron Rodgers has um, a, a great question that is big. So I'm going to put it on screen for us. But um, so there's a huge trajectory of the modern social movement, especially around the movements for black lives, has been the rejection of charismatic transformational individual leadership. Recent work in St. Louis follows this dynamic, strives to be multinodal and collaborative way more than it is dependent on one dynamic leader at the center. Do you think this is viable for creating lasting social and systemic change? The, the short answer, Aaron, I appreciate the question, brothers, absolutely. Absolutely. When I when I, my call for black church leadership is not a call for outstanding individuals. Right. Um, it's it's a call for um, communities grounded in a theological understanding of congregational identity that makes it impossible for their life. Mike, you just mentioned, um, um, you know, that one. Of, and, and this is really important that one of the things that has happened throughout the history of the black church is that when we enter when we enter worship on Sunday mornings, all of the things that I said earlier about what happens when we come into relationship with Jesus, our identity is transformed, our politics are transformed. All of that is supposed to happen on a regular basis as we enter into that worship space. Mm -hmm. We don't need any outstanding, particularly outstanding uh, articulate males to lead that movement. So I think that the, the movement away from this sort of um, sort of standalone over masculine, uh, you know, um, uh, outstanding individual model of leadership. I think that that's gone and I'm glad that it's gone. Um, and I, because it's, it's, I think it's much easier to, um, 
to um, um, to destabilize a movement that has one clear leader. Um, and so I think in many ways, when as as contemporary um, as contemporary organizing and resistance efforts continue to um, to have multiple centers, multiple sites of power who understand power in fundamentally different ways, who understand their responsibility and their authority in fundamentally different ways. I think not only is it sustainable, it's preferred. Um, mm. And um, that type of leadership, uh, and this is, this, so this would be some of my pushback to, to um, right? I mean, it's so critical that um, resistance work that is going to last be spiritually grounded. Mm. I'm not saying we got to have one male p pastor at the front. In fact, I would prefer for that not to be the case. But without a spiritual grounding, um, multiple centers uh, can become exhausting confusion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another question that came up, I, sort of what is it that the notion of separation and church and state, is that what is um, keeping black churches from power? Or if it's not just a notion of separation and church and state, what is keeping? I think you're answering that partly by talking about spiritual groundedness, but give you a strike at that question. Black church politics and the separation of church and state. Yeah, I mean, um, I hope it's okay that I'm just blunt enough to say that the separation of church and state has never been a black people thing. <laughs> I mean, that's you know, that's that's a that's a that's a that's a government concerned with you know maintaining. The, the ability to control in certain ways and also respect, you know, religious freedom kind of thing. Um, the, you know, the, the idea of separating your experience of the church from the state can't work for a church that's literally born in slavery. Yeah. I mean, what are you talking about here? The gospel itself is a is an undeniably political statement that has real ramifications for the nature and shape of the state. Um, yeah. So I, I don't think it's necessarily that. But what I do think um, has happened is um, over time, and some of this has to do with what in some circles might be perceived as social and economic progress, um, Black, many African-American churches have become more concerned with institutional stability mm. than with um, what might be called radical and prophetic witness. Now, um, I could start a whole bunch of fights by saying what I just said. Yeah, because what I'm not saying is that institutional stability doesn't matter to black people. Mm. Um, the only people who say that, I think, are people who are really ill informed about the history of black people trying to establish institutions. Right. The black church, of course, is the first institution that black people uh, control in the United States. So institutional stability is really critical for some of the storytelling work that I was talking about earlier. Right. But institutional stability, um, we, we got to be very clear about um, and the best black churches are very clear about um, the price, the cost. There's got to be a point at which we will say, um, listen, we are who we are without this building. And many churches are facing that right now, whether they want to or not. Yeah. We are who we are without, um, you know, this sort of recognizable sort of name and, 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 and establishment um, sort of identity that often is affiliated with American churches. Um, who we are is not rooted in things that you can give or take away. That is the black church at its at its core. So I'm not against institutional stability unless that institutional stability is pursued at the expense of the calling of the gospel um, to liberate God's people through the transformation of our identity and our politics. Yeah, I mean, it, coming from the the other side of that, right? The 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 white church understanding of church and state. I mean, Episcopalians, in some ways, have meant of that. James Madison is the one who wrote it in, and he's right. the church that he helped found. Yeah, um, but that. Some of that has to do with this respectability sense mm -hmm. that I mean, this, this, uh, and uh, a seminarian I was talking to recently talked about. She's writing a thesis about how uh, how many times the Episcopal Church has chosen an idea of unity over an idea of justice, mm. um, which is an I just it it it's one of our Achilles' heels, I think, in terms mm -hmm. of our ability mm -hmm. to actually mm -hmm. read and interpret the gospel in our tradition. Mm -hmm. We look for mm -hmm. unity sometimes before we look for justice. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to notice, though, that, I mean, you pointed to two particular leaders who have chosen a prophetic track, uh, and both of them happen to be congregational leaders, and both of them happen to have a trajectory of bringing two institutions into more strength 
and more attendance and more, yeah. you know, like it, it's not necessarily an either or, but it no takes courage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's that it's that balance, right? I mean, it it really is that balance. Um, but when the you know you use the word respectability, when that becomes, when that when when the the issue of respectability and perception, um, starts to drive too much of the ministerial work, and the missional work of the church, well, then we've got a real real we got a real issue, um, mm -hmm. and um. In a lot of ways, uh, you know, th th think about W.E.B. Du Bois's classic notion of double consciousness or some of the things that uh, authors like um, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates or um, um, more, more recently um, I've been reading um, both uh, Brittany Cooper and also um, Isabel Wilkerson, right? Uh, authors who have a very clear understanding that some of what it means to be black in America is to be constantly negotiating identity in a world where you know you're being watched. Mm -hmm. Right. It is, as the boy said, to constantly work out your understanding of your identity through the eyes of an other. Mm -hmm. And the liberation that Christ offers us means that that thing gets halted at a point where it will cost us in, in ways that are deep and sacred. Right. In many ways, one of my favorite talking points on this point around respect, respectability has to do with and we don't have to get off, off on this today, um, but it has to do with how we are going to make historical and theological sense of um President Obama. Yeah. Not the man, but his position. Yeah. Right. And what that means for the for the future of, of progressive black politics and the black church. Yeah, I think there's a I've read some about it, debating how much Obama is offered up as a messiah figure. Um becomes yeah. a real I mean, and if there's one thing that he was really clear that he was not, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but but how that gets read is a really interesting question. I wanna spin it as we, you know, we, we started with a question about, is this an interfaith conversation? I think we've settled into, we definitely both come from roots that at least made different claims around the gospel or have mm -hmm. historically made different claims around the gospel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I've heard a lot, and we, I mean, often hear it in February, because that's when we tend to hear a lot of Dr. King too, um, mm -hmm. but is this idea about, um, Dr. King said that, 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings, the most segregated, segregated hour in America. Mm -hmm. What, and, and from a white church perspective, that's often lamented. Mm -hmm. you know, that's often a, um, we shouldn't be so segregated in our yeah. worship and in our um, religion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wonder about how that hits you. Mm -hmm. um, what is your, um, yeah, you know, I, 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 you know, to put a finer point on that that interfaith question that we started with, you know, I, I do think that um, oftentimes conversations between black and white Christians, particularly black Christians who are products of um, congregations and theological lives, religious lives um, that are more sort of prophetic in orientation and grounded in a historical understanding of black identity. I do think that conversations between those kinds of folks and white Christians tend to be inter, they tend to be interreligious, interfaith conversations. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that, um, so, okay, so, so one, um, you know, one of my favorite clips, because um, when we, when we remember King in, in February, you know, one of my big issues is that we, we remember him poorly, but one of my favorite clips is from a 1967 interview with King, where he's thinking back on um, his I Have a Dream speech from um, 1963. And he says that, you know, in many ways, my dream has become a nightmare. Hmm. Um, you know, King was was uh, murdered, assassinated at 39 years old. So he's still figuring out a lot. So one of the things that King models for us, if if we read him closely and if we if we just resist the urge to ossify him, you know, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial eternally. Right. If we let him live as he did for five more years um, and listen to what he learned from his experiences, listen to what he learned from SNCC, listen to what he learned when he went to places like Chicago and he, and he saw how um, racism, um, economic violence and militarism uh, manifested themselves in social contexts different from the, the one he grew up in. When we sit with that king, some of what we discover is, um, you know, he, I think, um, and I think that their text to, to make this argument very compellingly, you know, king, his understanding of integration 
had everything to do with beloved community. Hmm. And if beloved community means anything else for white Americans, it is an invitation to fundamentally rethink who in the world you understand yourself to be in the first place. Yeah. There is no beloved community is not just, okay, you know, I usually hang out with a bunch of black people on the weekends. I'm going to start hanging out with some white people too, so we can create beloved community. No, no, no. Beloved community for King was about a fundamental transformation of who we understood ourselves to be in relation to each other. Mm-hmm. Now that's a two way street and there's power on both sides. So it's not that all of the work and possibility falls in the laps of white people, but it does mean because of what we know to be true socially, historically, and, and in a contemporary sense about the way power plays out in America, that there's a whole lot of work to be done on, on um, um, among white folks to have healthier relationships with African-Americans, but also communities of color in general. Yeah. I'm teaching a class at Eden Seminary right now where I teach theology and ethics. Um, and um, one of the one of the um, the books that we're reading today was uh, for a class earlier today was um, we were looking at anti-immigration sentiment from in the United States from 1865 to 1915. So yeah. so to so to look at how that xenophobia, right, and how that racism um, was manifesting itself in ways that continues to use the same language, continues to use the same logic. That language and logic cannot exist unless. There are a whole lot of white folks somewhere who continue to tell the same stories about their identity and about their religion um, in ways that are undisturbed, right? I mean, that's how we can hear in someone like um, former President Donald Trump rhetoric that's straight out of the late 1800s and that resonates deeply with tons of people, right? So, um, so I, I, I've kind of lost track of the question there, Mike. So, no, no, no. I think that that's. I, I think that that's right. I think you know, like. I, I preached a couple of sermons around the um, the insurrection at the Capitol, uh, yeah. talking about you know problems with idolatry and the need to call for conversion. Yeah, and I think that that is exactly right. Like the when people give that quote to me these days, I I kind of say you know, but the thing is, there was only one church that was segregated. Right. You know, the black church didn't ever say white people weren't allowed to come. Yeah. And, and if if a white person came in a black church, you know, the biggest worry was are they, you know, they're spying for the cops or something. But yeah, it's not a, right. it's not a question of the, in the same way that white churches, you know, built special sections or entirely excluded black folks. That's right. That's right. So it's a different. I think there's a, and it means that there's some confession and uprooting of mm-hmm. theological convictions that have to be. Mm-hmm. wrestled with it. Yeah, that's a that's a really helpful framing from what you're saying of of there's an invitation there to continue to learn the history, but but to talk about the way that those theological narratives continue to frame yeah. um, what's going on in the, you know, it, it we don't talk about the white church mm-hmm. enough. Um, we talk about the church and the black church. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we've been seeing the consequences of the white church uh, mm-hmm. in months in ways that is waking up and scaring some folks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. One of the things I've been for some years now um, doing some research on um, this sort of theological and social ethical meaning of black identity in America. And one of the things that I'm, I'm convinced that black identity is in the context of America, among other things, is uh, it's an invitation um, it's an invitation in the same way that you shared that your introduction to Latin American liberation theology really grounded you in your faith in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, the best of the black church is an invitation to anyone who would um, accept it mm-hmm. to fundamentally rethink the gospel in light of stories that we absolutely positively refuse to stop telling and should not stop telling. Mm. Right. That's not just about, you know, Black History Month is not just, OK, well, now we get, you know, 28, you know, in, in, a, in a good year. Right. We get 28 days to, to tell our stories. Yeah. No, um, you know, I, I as, as a seminary professor, I try to tell our stories all year because um, when you tell stories about folks at the bottom. Yeah. Because of the way societal and structural injustice works, you tell stories um, that everyone can find themselves in if they have the courage to do so. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's, you have to, you know, to tell the story, for example, about the fact that, um, you know, Dred Scott happens here in Missouri, 
right? So yeah. now all of the institutions in St. Louis and in Missouri um, need to be thinking about their in, their identities in relation to that case, which has you know undeniably shaped the the culture and the politics of this state to this day. Yeah. So we got to tell those stories of um, the folks who have suffered and survived and the ones who have suffered and died, um, because those are invitations. Um, those black stories are invitations to um, to all for all of us to rethink our identities together. There's a there's a possible entryway into beloved community, but we got to name the white church for what it has been. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Whenever I like to just, you know, whiteness is a lie. And, a, you know, this is this idea is is becoming more sort of pervasive in the culture. So I know a lot of folks have heard it, but you just got to really like internalize that, that if you think of yourself as white, some of what you're working on, uh, what I hope you're working on doing is um, making sense of that lie. Mm -hmm. that's so reified in our society that millions of people don't know how to think about who they are apart from it. Hmm. I mean, I mean, whiteness is, it, you know, there are authors who have good white authors who have written on whiteness as a prison that locks people into and away from each other and themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so um, I, I think we have a real opportunity through hearing painful stories and through telling some of the painful stories that white folks have had to learn to repress in the name of their whiteness. Right. Yeah. For self-discovery. Um, and for 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 rediscovering new grounds on which we can actually be together in healthy intimacy, right? Where it's not about one side trying to control the other, or profit off of the other. We can actually be um, what is depicted in the Gospels. But it, again, we got to earn it. We got to earn that. Well, and 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 I mean the control, but also <clears throat> feel superior to. Yeah. I think that's that's the. I mean the the fundamental lie that's of right. whiteness is I have a right to control because that's right. I'm superior. That's right. That's um, right. Naturally, so created to be so. And if and if yeah, you know that that's contradictory to the gospel. But it, it's also if you if you're invested in that, you're invested in a system of meaning that um, one of my favorite definitions is in. I'd love it if you could help me figure this out. I've asked several theologians. I've never had somebody been able to trace the root. I know I read it somewhere, but one of my favorite definitions of sin or in Lent, it's a good time to talk about sin, is um, sin is that which diminishes my humanity or mm. the humanity of my neighbor. Mm. Sin is that which diminishes my humanity or the humanity of my neighbor. And there are theologians that would argue that anytime you diminish the humanity of your neighbor, you're also diminishing your own humanity. Right. Yeah. I would agree with that. I, I, I can't help you out with that citation. Yeah, but I feel like I've read similar stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You come across it. But that's a, I also, uh, one of our, um, one of our uh, choir members, African-American woman, started out this month by talking about how she wishes more of Black History Month was focused on stories of triumph, um, on the stories of overcoming as well. Mm -hmm. And I would say as much as I agree with you, like we need to understand Dred Scott, we need to understand the stories that make Missouri, I mean, we got to talk about the Missouri Compromise. I mean, we got to talk about the stories that make um, Missouri politics to this day I think it's also been helpful for me as a as somebody who identifies as a Episcopalian to know the stories of folks who identified as Black Episcopalians, mm -hmm. like Thurgood Marshall, like Polly Murray, mm -hmm. um, the Black saints who like literally undid segregation yeah. at the legal framework. Um, yeah. Who uh, that there are stories of triumph as well yeah. that are also yeah. gospel stories. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, when I when I um, my I, I um, so when I talk about telling true stories that lift up that suffering, mm -hmm. I, I emphasize that because um, in America we tend to like our conception of truth, right? The, the true stories that we like to tell. Yeah. The role of suffering in the story is always to be overcome, mm -hmm. and that's that's a very helpful thing. Um, um, and, and I, and I, I, I always appreciate that. And I think that it is important to tell stories of, um, of triumph, to tell stories of, um, of, you know, attempts at organizing and getting things done that succeeded. Um, I also think that if I just, this is just for me, if I had to err on a side, yeah, I'm going to err on the side that tells the stories that make us go, whew, yeah. human beings are capable of that. Yeah. Because I think some of what I've seen 
is that um, particularly when the, when the stories of progress begin to, to really pervade, yeah. um, something happens to what should be uh, the sacredness of the stories that tell of not just suffering, it's, you know, cause it, it, we're here having this conversation right now because despite um, much of the, the evil that black folk have come through, um, um, it has not had the last word. Yeah. Um, but but I, I like to try to err on the side of let's tell full stories, but even if we're gonna tell stories about Thurgood Marshall and Pauli Murray, right? Oh, it's suffering in those stories. Yeah, yeah right. and, and so even to tell those stories in their full richness, right? We got to have the wait. They did that to a Supreme Court justice yeah. while he was a Supreme Court justice, yeah. right? And so you know, it's it's um, I I definitely appreciate that pushback. It, it's never my intention to make all of Black history out to be you know suffering and pain because it certainly ain't. Yeah. Um, but it's also not um just the sort of um you know smiling and dancing and and you know. Black church clapping that is often the, the caricatures that find their way into dominant imaginations. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's also the having to rebuild the institution after somebody bombs it. It's also mm -hmm. the, you know, and 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 finding the fortitude and the strength and doing the fundraising. And, <clears throat> and it's it's yeah. No, it's I that's a place I think where I think it'd be a healthy place to leave it. That, you know, this is an unresolved and difficult and um and the reality is, you know, we still within Christianity are often living Christianity. And even within an individual church tradition, uh, we may be having very radically different visions of what uh, the gospel might be. Yeah. And I think that that's a really and, and a, a chunk of what white Americans need to learn to do is quit just quoting old dead white guys. Um, but to learn the fuller story, uh, mm -hmm. to understand and and you know at its best glimpse the beauty, yes, of, um, the gospel as it has been rescued um, by the black community in America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But at times also you know we're in Lent, struggle with the depths of sin. Yes, and yes, because there's deliverance in there, and in there um, we can meet each other. Yeah. And we can meet each other in ways that, that we can't outside of that truth. Uh, yeah. Ben, thank you. Thank you. Um, always a pleasure, my brother. Always a pleasure to be with you, man. Always good to talk to you. And for those of you who are on live with us or those who are listening <clears throat> later, there are questions up at that website, pubtheologystl.org that I mentioned earlier. A uh, set of discussion questions that if you want to get together a group of friends and maybe some of you watched it together just live. And I know some people are planning to do it later, but get together and talk. We'll ask you to locate your own um, sense of what, how you participate in the tradition and talk through some of the questions we've talked through. So invitation to do that. We'll be back in two weeks. I'm pretty sure that's March 10th. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong in the comments, but, uh, and I'm gonna be with James Croft, who is the leader of the Ethical Society of St. Louis. And we're gonna be talking about uh, atheism and humanism and an interfaith conversation there um, should be a really interesting conversation. So hope you'll join us. Ben, again, thank you. Um, I love that we're in a picture of you at Theology on Tap, one of the last times we were able to gather in person. I hope we're able to do yeah, that. Yeah, that soon. was great. All right. Cool. Thank you again so much. Take care. Take care, y'all.